Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Brian Barnes, founder and CEO of M1 Finance, a money management platform that combines investing, borrowing, and banking into a single app. Brian launched M1 in 2015 after he felt frustrated with the tools available to manage his own money and has since grown the company into a platform that manages over $2 billion on behalf of 200,000 users with 75 employees. M1 has also raised over $55 million in equity from backers including Clock Tower Technology Ventures, Left Lane Capital, Chicago Ventures, and many more. Prior to M1, Brian worked as an equity researcher at a hedge fund and as a management consultant. He graduated from Stanford University. And now please join me in a great episode with Brian Barnes. Brian, thank you for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. We're excited to have you here. Can we hear a little bit about your personal background before we get started? Yeah, absolutely. You know, first, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here as well. Personal background that's probably most pertinent to, you know, starting a fintech company was just from a young age, got introduced to investing pretty early. And so parents showed me a brokerage account sort of 10, 11 years old, said, hey, this is investing. This is buying a, a stock. If you're interested, you can learn more. If you're not, you probably need to learn the basics. And I was immediately captivated and hooked by the entire notion of investing. It was you know, a hairy problem that you had to apply qualitative research to, quantitative assessment of, make a high conviction bet. If you're right, you've made money. If you're wrong, you lose money. And so I just uh, immediately captivated by the notion of investing in securities. Did that in middle school, high school, and college. Did undergrad at Stanford. So it was in the part of Silicon Valley, seeing all the good and bad that, that comes from that area. Did management consulting after that and a stint at a equity hedge fund prior to starting M1. And were you continuing to invest all along the way? For sure. So yeah, that was finance nerd from a young age. And so that was sort of my after-school hobby, personal hobby, middle school, high school, into college. Unfortunately, when I was working, we had enough proprietary information on various securities out there that wasn't able to make investment selections. And so everything was sort of passive index ETFs type investing. And it was really leaving those jobs, knowing, knowing I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial that got back into individual stock selection and was just massively underwhelmed with the tools that were out there. In some sense, M1 was the manifestation of the account that I wish existed and didn't in the marketplace. And so, you know, Created that to both create a business and also fulfill my need for personal investing. That seems to be a common theme for a lot of entrepreneurs. They're looking for a solution, they're looking for a product, they can't find it, so they launch it themselves. Tell us a little bit about you know, where that first idea came about and how did you approach really starting to build from the ground up M1? Yeah, so... From like a, the personal investing standpoint, I always approached investing more like portfolio management. And so I was always sort of saying, what portion of my of an investment made up the entirety of my portfolio? How did I you know, control against risk? And my time horizons were pretty long. And so you know, I was always investing for five years plus in terms of a holding period. And I looked at the tools that I was using, and I cycled through every brokerage account out there. I 
started with Ameritrade, went to Options House, used interactive brokers. And if you look at every single online brokerage, they're all built around the trade. And it makes sense because that's how they make money. They appeal towards traders and they do encourage a lot of frequent decision-making of, you know, buy at 10 a.m., sell at 2 p.m. and the like. And for me, the more common use case was I knew what I wanted to own, but I would get incremental capital every two weeks with my paycheck that I needed to put to work. And so for me, it was much more about, can I tell a software platform, hey, this is what I want to own at any given time, and then just add money to it and have it sort of do the administrative work or make the sort of like mundane decisions for me and just automatically put it to work. And so that's how M1 is built. It's you're building a custom portfolio by saying, I want this percent of my money in this investment, this percent of my money in that investment. You can pick individual stocks, individual ETFs, you can organize it in a very intuitive way, and then just automate that portfolio construction. Um, so that was really the like the genesis of the idea. And from there, moved into more of a comprehensive personal finance platform where I said, you know, I don't want to just invest with my money management platform. I also need to borrow money. I need to spend money. And so we branched out into those areas as well. And so we have a product called M1 Borrow, which is a line of credit at low interest rates. So you can borrow up to 35% of your portfolio's value at 2%. And then we have a high yield checking account that gives you 1% interest on cash and 1% cash back. So you know, it was really, hey, if I could use one platform to manage all of my money, automate everything that I could, have my money always be invested in the exact securities I wanted, in the exact proportion of what I wanted, if I ever needed capital, I could borrow at low rates. That's really just the, the genesis of like, I this is what I want in the world. And so you know, started to build towards that. In terms of actually, you know, going forth and building it, it was we were fortunate enough to raise a, a decent amount of money early into our evolution. And so it was really a founding team. I was the, the sole founder, but there were about six people um, who started the, you know, were there sort of day one with me. And it was, you know, we had a head of compliance, a head of product, a head of engineering, a head of operations, a head of design. And it was really, there was no shortage of things to do to start building the, the product. And so it was really just heads down for, you know, a year getting the, the broker dealer up and running, getting the regulated entity and all the, the business things aligned, you know, payroll and you know, administrative and office space and, and whatnot, while also designing and engineering the, the platform. And so it was a, it was a whirlwind of just do anything and everything to advance the cause. And there was no shortage of, uh, of things to be done to get to that sort of MVP level product. Makes sense. Curious to know how you found that founding team, the, that initial group of six people you just mentioned. It was a combination of personal connections. And so good friends for mine that I knew and you know, really respected and thought would do an incredible job, uh, had a similar mindset to me for what the company could be and what we were building, would do anything and everything to, to network. And so built up a sort of internal database of friends of friends of friends of friends, you know, anyone who's in the space and you know, tried to convince them of the idea. And so it was a combination of both of those. You know, I would say half were very close friends of mine who are, or, you know, acquaintances who I had uh, known for many years. And then the other half were just the random connection that the idea struck a chord with them and they were excited to work on it. Got it. And you just mentioned you worked on the product initially for about a year. And that's typical to fintech companies. You can't really launch very quickly, right? Your go-to-market time is significantly longer and a lot of it is due to regulation, right? How did you approach building that technology and then building the operations while balancing the expectations of perhaps the investors? Yeah, so, um, you know, you hit on it with the regulatory compliance. There's 
basically two reasons that fintech companies take a long time. I would say, yeah, the first is definitely regulation that in order to talk to an end customer or say, hey, do you want to use this product? We had to become a broker dealer, which is about a year-long application process. It takes a couple months to get all the paperwork in order. You file it. It's a six-month application process. There's a couple months of work after it. And so until you are a registered broker-dealer, you can't talk to end consumers and say, hey, do you want to buy securities or can you try out this platform? It is really, you know, that is the price of entry into this space. The second is you are dealing with people's money at the end of the day. And so there is a higher level of product experience that you have to deliver where, you know, if it's uh, sending a photo or an email, if an email gets lost, like, it's not great, but it's not the end of the world. In the finance world, even if you credit someone a penny that they don't deserve, all trust is gone, right? So, so there's an exact sign. You know, you have to be absolutely buttoned up, you know, near perfection when you're dealing with people's money. And so, there's just a higher bar of product and engineering that has to go into what you would like typically consider your MVP. In terms of, I think that dictates a lot of what you're telling to investors that. You know, when they sign up, they know that they won't see a product, they won't have a customer for a year. And, you know, that is a gating factor that filters out a lot of potential investors. You know, a lot of the potential investors want quick cycle times and, and to see progress really early. But I think at that point, it's the investors are buying into the idea, the team, the vision, the ability to execute much more than the early traction. And so, you know, it just sort of splits where the typical mindset from the investor is, is focused early on. Did that answer all of your question? I think there was a, another component that I may have missed. No, no, no. That certainly explains it. And so along the way, you have to partner with a lot of key players to develop this solution. Who are your main partners and how did you develop these relationships along the way? Yes, we have the three products, invest, borrow, and spend. And so invest and borrow is run through our broker dealer. And the main partner there is Apex Clearing. They're pretty familiar within the, the fintech landscape that they were the backend custodial firm to a lot of the fintech players. And so they currently are that to Betterman, SoFi, Stash. And then previously, they had done that for Robinhood, Wealthfront, and some others. And so you know that's our initial partner there. And then on the banking side of the world, we use two. One is Lincoln Savings Bank. That is the bank account where our customer funds are actually held. When you get an M1 issued debit card, it's issued by Lincoln Savings Bank. And then we use a processor called Corpro that is powered by Q2. So those are the various components. And you know, we have no shortage of uh, other partners in there. In terms of getting started, it's cold emails and cold calls. The nice thing is they're in the you know, B2B service business. And so when you when they get an inbound call that is Hey, we're looking to launch a company on your platform and give you money. They tend to pick up the phone and answer. But you know, they've been great partners, really focused on helping our business grow. That the way that they're like when it's an idea or there's not much of a platform there, they similarly are betting on the, the, the team, the idea, the ability to execute. And they know that to become something big, you have to first start somewhere. You know, and, and when you start, you're gonna be really small and, and non-influential and not bring a whole lot to the table, and you know they were willing to put in the time and energy to help us get to the scale that we are now, and hopefully grow significantly larger. Yeah, that makes sense. And these are not, you know, easy relationships also to establish because they require a fair amount of 
compliance minimum requirements, and it takes a while to onboard this relationship, if I'm correct. For sure. So, you know, just like the regulators are, you know, scrutinizing your business, and it's even something from the regulator's perspective, when you become a broker dealer after the year application process, you have to prove that you have 12 months of capital, even if you made no money in revenue. And so there's a high bar from a capitalization perspective. So you have to raise a decent amount of money early. The partners that you go with similarly look to capitalization that they don't want you to create something, attract a ton of users, and then say, hey, we don't have the money to support it. So they're looking for proven longevity. And then they're similarly, like they're putting their brand name on the line as well from a regulatory compliance, data security, anti-money laundering, knowing your customer, you know, sort of all the things that are necessary for any financial institution to operate in the United States. And so they do have a high bar. And so you get a lot of scrutiny early on. I would say it forces fintech companies to just act more mature and more professional from a very early stage. These are not companies that you know two people in a garage can create and bring something to market. You really do need to have your T's crossed and I's dotted from the get-go and really create a mature company that has more sophisticated practices than your typical startup might. Right. The lean startup doesn't really work in the fintech space. For sure. You know, the principles might of MVP, just the MVP bar is so much higher. You know, it's a very few people say, I want to manage my money on a app that crashes on something that, you know, airs out and stuff like that. So, you know, it's a, uh, it's definitely a high bar to cross on a whole bunch of different dimensions. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your growth. When did you officially launch and tell us about your trajectory in the last few years? Yeah, so we launched in late 2016. So we are almost, in six months, we'll be four years live. So three and a half years live. In terms of the growth, it took us 18 months to reach 100 million bucks on the platform, another 18 months to reach a billion. And then in the last six months, we're about 1.75 right now. So pretty steep on that asset accumulation curve. So, and then the nice thing is our growth rate, we're adding about five and a half million dollars a day of money coming into the platform, which if you annualize it is 2 billion bucks a year. So we're at $1.7 billion on the platform now, growing by about $2 billion a year. So that's the growth. We started with the investing platform. We added the borrow platform about 18 months later, and then just released the spend product. All three of those are going to really substantive traction. And so people are using it as their comprehensive personal finance platform and the finance super app where you can automatically deploy money towards where it can be best used for your personal financial situation. And then the team has gone from the six people that we started with, we're now 70 people, all based in Chicago. We are all obviously now work from home. We've got a nice shiny new office right in time for it to get shut down and, and sent to the home office. But you know we're growing very quick and have plans to continue to accelerate that. Certainly impressive. Tell us about your approach to recruit the best talent, right? Because we keep hearing that talent is what really matters when building a company. You've you know, gone 10x in the last three and a half years. How do you recruit the best talent for M1? And when they join the company, what kind of company culture are they going to encounter? Definitely echo the point. You know, if other people have said it, I will be you know, a strident advocate that the people are 98% of, of what drives the success that you do start with an idea, but very quickly it's you know what people do day in, day out to 
build the platform, create the platform, recruit the users, recruit other people to it. And so it is very much a people business. And the problem set becomes very large very quickly. You're covering a ton of surface area. And so it's impossible for one person to drive that. You really do need a ton of highly capable, competent, motivated people to own their various areas. And we've always taken the approach, we're not going to be able to find, recruit, or frankly pay the you know, 52-year-old seasoned exec who's done this three times. They're a little bit out of our price range. And so really what we're looking for is sort of that diamond in the rough, the you know, younger person who has that capability, who given the, the tenure would be that seasoned exec, but we're finding them early in their career and sort of taking the mentality that they are massively underutilized and their potential is hampered in the sort of bureaucratic large company process where you know they're capable of much more. And in some sense, we're the pitch that we're doing is come join a smaller shop, you're gonna get a incredible amount more responsibility, the autonomy to do it, and the ability to make a huge impact. And so, you know, that is really what motivates the people to join is the ability to move from the career ladder where you, you crush it and you get promoted in a year and eight months rather than two years, or you do bad and you get promoted in two years, three months. And it's really, you know, hey, propel your career to five echelons up in a matter of year dictated by how successful you are at running the organization. And so it's, it's really, you know, put your worth out there and what the market decide. And in terms of the, the culture, I think we just have that throughout that, you know, M1 is trying to compete with the Schwab's of the world, the fidelities of the world, all the well-funded startups out there. And we're doing it with 70 people, whereas those companies have tens of thousands and budgets that put ours to shame. And so the only way that we can do it is just massively outperform on a person-by-person basis and a speed basis. And so, you know, I would say our culture is made up of what I call like player coaches. It's people who can both set the strategy, think strategically, see the big picture and sort of know what it takes to get to the perfect end state that we're trying to get to, but then also roll up their sleeves and start working on it and actually you know, do the work as opposed to direct a team to complete the activities. And so you know, I, th- I think that's, that is more or less how I would describe the culture. It's you get a lot of responsibility, a lot of autonomy. You're expected to do a lot and there are high expectations. But then you know, it's, we're Chicago Midwestern firm, so I think we have that Midwestern Humility, you know, sort of a nice, we'll, we'll say hi to you on the street type mentality, which always makes it for nice co-workers. And so, you know, it's a combination of the ambitiousness for success, as well as just a nice humility of being an enjoyable co-worker. Great. Let's talk a little bit about the new reality that we're all living in. And, and that's, of course, COVID-19 crisis. Sounds like you actually have experienced some tremendous growth throughout this time. Tell us a little bit of how has it impacted your business, but also how has it impacted your clients? Yeah, so I do think we fall on the side of the world from COVID where it's an accelerant to the fully digital offering. As, and, and you know that was something that was, I think, pretty assuredly going to happen, but it was going to happen over a long period of time. And this just poured some fuel on that fire to accelerate things. And if you look at it, consumer applications, Outside of finance, I actually think are considerably better than the ones in finance. And you know, I think a lot what we were talking about earlier from the, the compliance and the difficulty in building that is a lot of the reason. But there's no reason that can't be the case. And so I do think the this new wave of fintech is, you know, investors, entrepreneurs looking at this as a sort of protected industry that everyone has to use. 
and hasn't seen a whole lot of meaningful innovation. And it allows opportunity to come in and create a significantly better digital offering. And so M1 at the end of the day really does want to deliver you that personal finance suite that is everything that a bank brokerage could offer you with you know a team of six behind them, but digital in the palm of your hand, hyper-intuitive, automates everything. And really saying like, we're going to offer the end user what they would get with the Goldman private net worth advisor. And we're going to do it in the palm of your hand for free for people with $10,000. And so that that's a very meaningful change in the way that the world would work. And it, you know, the whole notion of like democratizing access, but it's delivering world-class financial experience to people with smaller sums of money and, you know, opening access to them. I think that was inevitably going to happen over the next 10 years. You know, there's going to be a generational shift from the people who have the money now, which is typically the, you know, 50 plus crowd who have you know, an entire career of earning money, saving money, investing, having that compound to the younger people who just have different wealth expectations and how they see and manage their own money. But this really put, like I said, the gas in the fire and accelerated that trend where people are obviously less apt to go into retail locations, even with working with a financial advisor, when the market drops 30% and you lose 30%, like everyone else, you sort of start to question, why did I pay someone 1% of my net worth every single year if I'm going to just get market asked returns? And so, you know, I think it has broadly helped our business because the vast majority of the money is in these old, outdated, costly incumbents and the gyration sort of bring to the forefront, hey, there's a whole bunch of new offerings that are doing things better, cheaper, faster, and the like. And so you know, that has led to yeah, significant growth over the past six months, You know, uh, I guess like four months or five months since uh, everything started with COVID. The business, I think, has you know, done very well that because we're a tech-first offering, everything we do is cloud-hosted, SaaS offerings from the, the software we use. And so we are well accustomed to working from anywhere that so long as you have a laptop and an internet connection, we can run our business, which gives us a lot of flexibility that it didn't hurt productivity. And then from the, the consumer standpoint, I'd say we skew older than a lot of our fintech peers. And so if you look at Stash, Acorns, Robinhood, and the like, we definitely skew older than them, but we skew younger than the incumbents. And when the market drops 30, 40%, they see it as a buying opportunity. That these are people looking for you know, long-term wealth creation and management where they're thinking their home, their kids' education, their retirement. These are decade, multi-decade problems that they need to solve for. And a huge drop in the stock market has seen nothing but an opportunity for them. And so we've seen massive inflows to sort of capitalize on a once in a decade or two drop that is very like catastrophic and difficult short-term. But when you sort of zoom out and look long-term, it we're going to be looking back at this in 15 years and sort of said, yeah, that was a huge buying opportunity. And I think people have that perspective when you can think long enough term. That makes sense. And how has this affected your future plans? Have you had to adjust some of your strategy in light of this new reality? It really hasn't. That you know, We've always been focused on building a premier personal finance suite that manages all of your personal finances and automates across all of your personal finances. And so that has been our focus. The nice thing about personal finance and fintech, it's an evergreen industry that people need great finance tools now. They'll need it in five years. They'll need it in 10 years. And so we don't think that someone needs to win the market in the next year to be successful. It's really just 
continued innovation in the space and continued delivering phenomenal experiences to the end consumer. Doing that over decades is really what's going to drive long-term success. And so for us, it really hasn't changed strategy. It's you know, continued building great product experience for our customers to manage their money. Got it. Now, Brian, I know you probably don't give investment advice, but what's your take on this bull market that we are experiencing over the last few months? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah, you can't comment on specific securities or uh, even give my perspective too much. You know, the difficulty in commenting on short-term fluctuations is if you went back six months and you had the you know, news stories from now ahead of time, so you had perfect clarity in terms of what was going to happen, it would be very difficult to predict what was going to happen with the stock market. And so, you know, it's sort of saying, hey, even if you have perfect clairvoyance into the future, you're not going to get 100% batting. And so the, the notion that with ambiguity of what happens in the future, you're going to get even closer, I think it is a fool's errand. You know, it's, it's definitely a tough gamble to, to do. And it's really why M1 has sort of always pushed down the notion of trading that nobody knows if something is going to go up at 10 a.m. versus 2 p.m. Like there are going to be random market gyrations and there's going to be noise in the system and sentiments going to drive that. And so short-term fluctuations is sort of a flip of the coin. It's random in nature. And when you're doing that, we do view it as more or less gambling. It's fun. It's enjoyable. But it's also costly, even if there are no commissions, that you eat the spread every time and it's really tax inefficient that turning over your securities, you're going to just pay taxes on all your gains every single time versus long-term investing, which is very different than trading, which is establishing ownership in the companies, the sectors, the industries that uh, you think can generate value over time. And it's really through that ownership that you benefit, that you know, it's an income-producing asset that is trying its best to produce more income as time goes on um, and taking that perspective. And when you take that perspective, I do view... Again, 10 years, I think things are going to be higher and there are going to be companies out there that are considerably higher. There are also going to be you know, companies out there that are considerably lower or bankrupt in that time. But it's through the long-term ownership and the appreciation of an income-producing asset that delivers the value. And so we focus way less on any things that happen in sort of the months timeframe and much more focus on you know, years and generating wealth over long periods of time. That long-term compounding effect that does a trick. For sure. Yeah, yeah. You run those like Excel things and you know, it doesn't matter what your growth rate is. So long as you compound long enough, it's going to be big at the end. Brian, a lot of the particularly fintech entrepreneurs that we interview, they're going to be located in the coast, right? They're going to be either in San Francisco, where you spend some time, or in New York. Not a lot of people from Chicago. Tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial scene in Chicago. Yeah, um, might have to push back on the fintech firms in Chicago a little bit. That I just think what are very much fintech firms, but don't get the TechCrunch publications would be you know our Chicago Board of Trade, the CBOE, Citadel, Jump Trading, and so you know we have some of the most sophisticated trading platforms in the world hosted out of Chicago. We do the vast majority of derivatives trading. The proprietary trading firms are dime a dozen. The pits used to be here. And then even from a, a brokerage capacity, you had Thinkorswim generated out of here. You had Options Express, both you know, near billion-dollar exits. So there is a very long history of financial services in Chicago and very successful 
fintech companies that were started. That being said, like, yeah, the coasts get more attention and, uh, and more funding. Uh, <laughs> but if anything, like COVID has changed that, I think, in a hurry. That I always question the notion of when it's a tech-driven platform, you should be able to recruit globally. It doesn't matter where it's created. Your service, like, I mean, everything we host is in the cloud. And so it's not like we have a physical presence anywhere. And so you should be able to be sort of location agnostic. And it was always a little head scratching of why things coalesced around cities in an era where the infrastructure supported not having to be in cities. Um, and then, you know, we have the COVID situation where everybody's working from home and people are leaving New York and San Francisco in mass to, to go to other locations. And you see the firm's productivity not dropping at all. And so I think it's you know, really opened the door to like, A, we don't have to cluster around a limited amount of space that drives up rent and has us paying a fortune to live here. We can work from anywhere. And so I think moving forward, things are going to be a little bit more location agnostic than they have been in the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. And do you think you will also adjust to this reality by opening up your future recruiting to candidates around the world or around the country? Over time, yes. I think foreseeable future, we are still going to be sort of Midwest and Chicago based. That there are weird things that sort of are difficult, even outside of just being in a physical location, that the second that we have multi-states, there's different labor laws and taxes associated with that and how we grant every single person that M1 is granted ownership within the company and how that differs by state changes. And then when you move internationally, we have security concerns that we have to address that you know, we don't want code being written outside the US and you know, transported over services that may or may not be secure. You know, we would do absolutely everything in our power to have secure VPN access across the world, but the world's a scary place and there are some smart people trying to get into some unsecure locations. And so, you know, the, I think there are some difficulties of that short term, long term as we scale. It's definitely something that we are very open to that we gauge people on their productivity and output, not necessarily on the location they are. And so being able to recruit from anywhere is a, is a huge plus for us. Perfect. We have quite a few listeners who are either entrepreneurs or aspiring founders. Brian, you've been at the helm of, you know, a startup for over four years now. Tell us about, you know, those lessons that you've learned and maybe some of your reflections as an entrepreneur, as a founder. I'm sure our listeners would love to learn from that. Yeah. The first thing that I would say is you have to just be massively biased towards action and doing that you are, you're never going to feel ready or capable that you know, I started M1 at 25. 30 now, so relatively young founder, there is absolutely nothing that qualifies me to be the CEO of a broker dealer managing close to 2 billion bucks, other than the fact that I started it. And even if you are ready to start it and you have all the skills there, any amount of success and you're going to be like outside your swimming lane very, very quickly. The notion of waiting around and developing skills and reading and talking to people, it's great. It advances. Nothing's going to accelerate you faster than starting on it, doing it, getting really uncomfortable, pushing through that, getting to your next stage where you're also over your skis in terms of your capabilities, developing the, the capacity there and the like and, and pushing forward. And so you know, I, I would say start sooner rather than later and just keep pushing forward and always be massively biased towards action. The second thing goes back to what we were talking about earlier with people that the problem set becomes 
way too large for any individual person extremely quickly. You know, someone can sort of put together the, the business plan, the idea, have some things that they can contribute early on, but it becomes a team and a group effort almost immediately. And so you do need to find really capable, motivated people that are bought into the vision, that have similar mindsets, that are willing to work hard alongside you and you know, be scrappy in terms of building towards what you guys are ultimately doing. I think the ability to sell and recruit people to work on your cause is also a huge skill set that never goes away. And it's, it's truthfully where I probably spend the majority of my time now that I can contribute to the day-to-day in a very negligible way now. You know, it, it's really being able to build the team and the, you know, the power of 70 people working on something massively trumps the, the power of six people working on it. And so you know, being able to make a broad team productive is where the focus is now. Fascinating. Before we go, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about how they spend their time outside of work. So perhaps you could tell us about some of your hobbies outside of M1. I very much like two-wheeled vehicles. So I have both a road bike, so a cycling bike for the human-powered front, but then I also have a motorcycle for the non-human-powered front. <laughs> you know, just turning the wrist gives you the power that you need. Um, so I enjoy that. I go on long rides the Chicago land area for that. Uh, and then also big golfer. So I uh, grew up playing was mediocre. You know, I was like high school. Okay. I was on the team in high school, but by no means a phenom, but enjoy getting out there. It's always fun to relax in nature and put the ball with some friends. Excellent. Well, Brian, congratulations on all your success. We're excited that you joined us. We are sure that we'll see a lot more coming from you and M1. And we hope to see you also around campus sometime. Yeah, no, thanks for hosting me. It was, it was great to talk. And when the world gets back to normal, we'd love to visit. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Brian. Yep. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.